there. Welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. And here we are. <laughs> Take two. We actually uh, recorded this intro a number of days ago. And why and... are we here doing it again, Dylan? Well, it's all your fault, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, no, n- none. Um, yeah, so I, w- I usually get to editing on like... If I'm lucky, Saturday, usually Sunday, Monday, I do all the editing of the episode. So there I am sitting on my couch, loading in our files to our uh, my editing software, and I load up the intro, and my file had no sound on it, and it turns out <laughs> I didn't record anything. <laughs> so um, I'm happy to be here back with you on mm-hmm. Tuesday, the day before this episode comes yeah, out. Yeah. I got a panicked <laughs> anyway. text that was like, uh, I have bad news. <laughs> and yeah. this was not nearly as bad as as real bad news. This just means we get to reintroduce our wonderful episode and our wonderful guest. Yeah. So, you know, and you it's know okay. what, listener? That's life. That's life. Yeah. And we'll move on for you. Yeah. So we're happy to redo this. <laughs> um, but the, the one thing uh, that I do want to mention is that we did have a fantastic conversation with Dr. Jason Nam, who is assistant professor of music in bands at Indiana University, Jacobs School of Music. And it was just such a pleasure to talk to him. But mm-hmm. I have an important thing to ask. And that is, Kate, have you booked your room for Midwest? Yes, I have. Um, but I, I will say that with some trepidation because, you know, I, I'm i not sure yet. None of us are sure what's going to happen in the coming months. But I remain hopeful that the border will be open, that the state yeah. of the world will be safe enough to allow the possibility of travel and group conferences and all of the wonderful things that come with Midwest. So yes, I booked a room, but obviously but who I'll knows? cancel it if we, yeah. <laughs> How about you? Well, I got, uh, this, we really should have been talking about this a couple of weeks ago because mm. I, I got an email from Jason Kassler to the whole ASU conducting studio which also seemed rather frantic and being like, <laughs> we need to book our rooms for Midwest. And it was like the last thing on my mind <laughs> was going to North America's largest band and orchestra festival. Mm-hmm. But I guess everything's good down there. So <laughs> um, we'll find out. But I was I was thinking the uh, the other night we, we were uh, chatting on the Facebook and, and uh, you were sending me these screenshots of your ex- accepted proposals for the Midwest. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. is this, this is, this is, this must be what it's like to be friends with someone who gets like five Oscars in <laughs> one year for different things. Cause it was just like one after another. So congratulations on all your accepted, uh, Thank Midwest you. proposals. It's Thank you. I suppose this is the Oscar nomination situation <laughs> of the of concert band world. Yeah. <laughs> No, but I am. Uh, I'm very grateful to have been included in uh, two panel presentations with real rock star colleagues. Mm-hmm. I'm. I feel like I'm among incredible people, and um, yeah, I'm really hopeful that I'll be able to attend and be part of these um, these sessions. That I think I think we have a lot to offer people. So um, 
yeah, I remain hopeful. But actually, it's it's a even though you mentioned we should have talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think it's good timing because one of those panel presentations uh, is actually going to be with Jason Nam, who we had mm-hmm. on the podcast this week. So it is a nice connection there. Yeah, and and what a guy Jason Nam is. I know he's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. and we and had like, such a was, great conversation. Yeah, it was great. It was my first time meeting him, and I'm mm-hmm. happy to meet people virtually. That's what that's one of the cool things about this podcast. Yeah. Although we don't, you know, last year we didn't get to go to Midwest or Music Fest Canada or whatever it is, but it it seems like our network every week expands. Our inspiration expands. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I know it doesn't quite make up for in person interactions, but I think we're no, pretty this lucky. Is it. This is the new world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, No, we're pretty lucky, though. We get to do this kind of thing every week that Mm -hmm. many people don't get, um, you know, that frequently. The chance to have our perspectives broadened and to to network and connect with new people in new ways. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. And um, yeah, so we we had a great conversation about diversity, about tokenism in our field and Mm -hmm. how we can avoid that. (laughs) And as well as um, many other great things, working with living composers and Mm -hmm. uh, Jason's position at IU. So there's lots of fun. But before you hear about all of those fantastic things, could you please consider doing us a favor Hey, and who am I going to ask this week to to ask that favor? Oh, Kate. Hey, <laughs> um, what what could that favor be? Well, if you listeners could please head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to find podcasts like this one, and give the Bandroom Podcast a rating and a review. Hopefully, a good review and a and a good rating, five stars, maybe. You know, this mm-hmm. really, really does help to others to find the podcast. So that would be a huge help to us. It sure does. And speaking yeah. of five star reviews, <laughs> it's time for this month's review of the month, and Woo-hoo. this is a fresh one, just a couple days old. I haven't uh, even heard it. Yeah, you haven't even heard it. Huh. And I don't think this is the person's real username, but <laughs> it's from <laughs> More Bucks, please. Wouldn't we all love that? <laughs> that, that if, you didn't, if you couldn't count that, that was five exclamation marks. Um, and the title is Insightful, Brilliant. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you very yeah. much. Um, and it, and uh, more, more bucks, please, says, this podcast was recommended to me by my peers, and it never fails to entertain me and educate me. I always end each episode with a new perspective in my mind and a topic to think about for myself. Awesome podcast. Aww. Smiley face, if you could. That's so great. Yeah, thank you. More bucks, please. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of more bucks, please, what's another way that I... <laughs> How do you like that for a segue, Dylan? That was an awesome segue. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We have, um, we recorded a fun, <laughs> fun bonus episode with uh, Dr. Uh, Nam, um, which was just a twister of a good time. And he yes, uh, really was. told a, a great story of a experience he had um, before a concert, and which was quite dramatic. So <laughs> it was dramatic, but it was it funny really at was. The same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you can hear that episode if you. 
give us more bucks, please, <laughs> by supporting us uh, on Patreon. Uh, for less than a latte's worth of investment, you can hear this bonus episode and more. What a back catalog we are growing, mm -hmm. as well as monthly Zoom hangs with Kate and I, which needs to happen soon. I just mm -hmm. realized that. Um, yeah. And many more wonderful forms of bonus content that you can enjoy. Yeah. But anyway, I just really want you to hear this episode, listener. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Jason Nam. And here we are for another very exciting episode of the Band Room Podcast. This week, we are excited to welcome Jason Nam to the Band Room. Welcome to the Band Room, Jason. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so happy to have you. So in our typical Band Room fashion, we'd like to start by asking you if you could tell us where, why, and how you started your musical journey. Sure. Yeah. And uh, again, let me just... First off, before I dive in, just say um, really appreciate the the invite and um, considering me. And um, I'm I've listened to the podcast before, and um, I, I think I can consider myself a fan. So it was Aww. a treat just to <laughs> to um, to be asked and to be included. So thanks so much. Um, well, thank really, you. Really, really appreciate what you guys do and um, and how you do it. So um, it's really awesome to be here. Um, so my musical journey. Um, I guess with any description of this, you have to start pretty early in your life. Um, so I was born in the LA area, uh, specifically Glendale, California. Um, I grew up in a city called Santa Barbara, California. Um, I know this is a Canadian podcast, so <laughs> your audience may or may not know what that is. Yeah. It's what a pretty well-known location. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, you know, a really beautiful city in Southern California. Um, it's known as a fairly major tourist hub um, north of LA. Um, you know, lots of people get married there and it's mm -hmm. like a beach community. Um, and it's sort of like the, the I always describe it as the furthest north Southern California gets before it becomes <laughs> something else. Um, so, but we're still Southern California. Um, but, and I, I always, when I introduce myself to students, um, typically I throw out my standard sarcastic description of where I grew up as, um, you know, oppressively ugly and unpleasant Santa Barbara, which is the opposite <laughs> of what it is. Um, so I usually get some snickers, but, um, well, anyways, um, uh, you know, my, my older brother, um, Growing up in Santa Barbara, did participate in school band through middle and high school, and you know, naturally being a younger brother, um, I kind of saw that, and that kind of served as a little bit of a model for myself. Um, he also played guitar occasionally, um, but he actually didn't end up continuing in band. Um, and my family was not very musically inclined at all, um, so like many in the music and band field, I feel like my experiences really began and, and came about through public school music programs. You know, mm -hmm. I had that original impetus to be a part of band because of the influence of my brother. And, and um, you know, I, I began playing trumpet, um, as we just kind of talked about before yes. we hit record. Um, I am, yeah, like you, Dylan, I am a, <laughs> I'm a trumpet playing conductor. So, um, and everything that comes with that, uh, whatever, whatever that means. I feel like you're people. more humble. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, it's funny because a lot of whenever I conduct an honor band, uh, one of the questions is, "What do you play?" and and I ask, I usually ask them, "What do you think I play?" Uh, based on Ooh. the vibe, and I kind of have that like very in the middle. I don't get too excited. I don't get too low, like Southern California surfer vibe. Um, so they usually pick something like saxophone uh, for whatever reason. So I'll take it. But um, anyways. <laughs> You know, I, I started playing trumpet in fifth grade, like many people, and I started playing practically due to um, social and peer pressure almost. Um, I just had a lot of close friends that were joining band and, and actually selecting the trumpet or brass instruments. So I just decided to just hop aboard. And luckily, I really took to the instrument. And I definitely um, ended up outlasting a lot of those friends in music. Um, just it's something clicked for me. And, you know, I, I remember... Um, every music teacher I ever had, um, they just all had such a profound impact on me. And, um, uh, my, my elementary band teacher was, um, he's an older gentleman. Um, I remember his name, uh, Herb Fredland, I believe. And, uh, he's basically a volunteer instructor of the elementary band. Um, he was retired and just kind of a, um, amateur or, um, you know, semi-pro uh, uh, musician mm-hmm. uh, from his earlier years and he just wanted to volunteer his time which in and of itself is just such a great um, model you know just just to kind of see and that element of service um, but he was great very supportive um, I also had that light influence like I said of my brother and um, and that model but and you know like being in band and for me personally being the younger brother and sort of the baby of the family um, I, I became sort of all in on music and trumpet and everything that came with that pretty quickly. Um, it's nothing new. I mean, people always talks about talk about the the sense of community and belonging that mm-hmm. being a part of band can create. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was the very same. You know, it gave me something that sort of became my thing, um, and something that gave me that sense of identity and a, a place. Um, to belong and mm-hmm. you know a place to be weird to to <laughs> you know make jokes to have all those social things that are attached to band but also to have like really amazing experiences just making music with other people that sort mm-hmm. of common goal um mm-hmm. so you know i continued the common path through music uh, through school music and band and through my junior and senior high school years i was one of those um music band nuts you know i just participated in absolutely everything I could, um, you know, from concert ensembles, jazz ensembles, marching band. I even spent some years as um, a percussionist and kind of doing double duty. Ooh. We had a pretty competitive percussion ensemble, uh, marching percussion in, in the winter and participated mm-hmm. in WGI and those sorts of things. So I spent a couple um, years really um, excited about that and also continued um, playing trumpet. Um, I did stuff like start chamber groups like because they weren't existent in our program so i started like a brass quintet with some friends and we would go out and gig during the holidays with santa (laughs) hats on and you know that that kind of stuff like so we were really all in um another thing that that is definitely part of my past um is uh i became really enamored with drum and bugle corps in high school Mm and um it's been a while since i've kind of had a pulse on a finger on the pulse of what right. DCI has been. I, I kind of peripherally look at all that, but, um, but you know, that was great fun. And I was able to participate um, during college uh, for one year, which was an education in and of itself. Um, but, 
yeah, all these experiences in my hometown and beyond to my undergraduate years. Um, I went to the University of Redlands, um, which is a school just east of LA, about 60 miles and um, uh, kind of out in the Riverside County, um, Palm Desert area. Um, one of the claims to fame of uh, the University of Redlands is we uh, we produced uh, Gene Bercorny. Uh, hey, he went there for his undergrad, I player. believe. So, yeah, he's 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 pretty all right. He has yeah. a bright future ahead of him, I think. Um, but yeah, so I, I really um, remained hooked um, on music and, and band and um, music education, and that just kind of naturally led to um, more experiences beyond that. But. I don't know if that was more than you were bargaining for oh, in no. terms of an answer, but that's no, that's that's, perfect. that's sort of the the early years. Yeah, and it's it's funny. It's very similar. It sounds like a very similar experience to what I had in Canada on on the opposite coast, even. And uh, I was thinking, mm-hmm. my, in my family, we we had the opposite situation where I'm the older brother, and my my brother was in band, but then quit because he was tired of hearing about the things that I did in that program and whatever. And he's like, no, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah. And now he's a singer songwriter. Enough so already. Yeah, enough, enough. Um, but one thing, and this is not, we did not give you this question, but I, I, anytime I have the chance to ask, uh, what do you think it is about the trumpet and the fact that many conductors are trumpet players? What do you think the connection is? I don't know. I haven't really thought about that too much. I mean, of course you have the, those sort of instrument stereotypes that yeah. people have that always kind of make me cringe. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> there are some elements that are, that can be found to be true. Um, so particularly about trumpet players, you know, the stereotype being like, we're always, you know, um, excited about being leaders and, you know, we always often carry the melody and we, we're not shy about that. And we and it kind of like bravado that comes with that. And yeah. I guess if you think about it, being a conductor, and being up there and the the idea of leading other people um, is kind of a crazy concept, right? I mean, like <laughs> just that you're putting yourself out there and saying, I know, I know, and follow me. Yeah. Um, that there's, I guess, a connection there or kind of a, a willingness to be in that that role. Um, but, in the spotlight. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's unavoidable that there's certain kind of egocentric um, uh, parts of being a conductor, right? I mean, that's people have uh, joked about that, written about that for generations. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we hope to not exude those characteristics yeah. and be humble, but, um, maestroitis. Yeah, is it's kind I of involved. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately. And then I was, I was also, I was just thinking whenever you were mentioning, uh, the idea of, of conducting and things, um, you know, maybe it's more related to the CAC. And the fact that like if we if we mess up in the section, everyone hears it, and it's the same thing as a conductor. So maybe it's a very easy easily transitioned. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Just in case we go down an egotistical route, I'm gonna switch gears here. Uh, so <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, I think what I I had the the great pleasure of listening to your interview on the Everything Band podcast, and most of us. Um, have dreams early in the beginning of being, I don't know, a police officer or a fire person or whatever. <laughs> but you, mm-hmm. you know, very early on in your up musical upbringing, you, you knew you wanted to be an educator. So I was wondering what inspired that career path. And maybe that maybe that can lead us into uh, talking about your time as a as a music educator in the public school system. 
Sure. Um, you know, I think that whenever I talk about these early beginnings and what my I wanted my career path to be, I always think of a particular individual um, in my uh, elementary school life. And I, I really indeed knew at that point in those kind of like fourth, fifth, sixth grade years that I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't, I didn't want to be a music teacher necessarily at that <laughs> point. I just knew I wanted to be some sort of teacher. Um, and I, I suppose that speaks really highly of um, the education we had um, growing up where we lived. But um, I always knew that was going to be the goal. And um, it w almost wouldn't matter what I what I taught, but I just wanted to work with, um, with young people, kind of like be, essentially become the the teachers that I had, the great people um, that taught me. Mm -hmm. um, I had a particularly amazing teacher. Um, her name was Mrs. McKeachin. And it was kind of kind of like um, a situation where even to this day, I don't even know what her first name is or was. Because <laughs> as a little kid, you just don't, you're not yeah. you're not even aware of that. You know, that the teachers live thing. at school. They don't do anything else. They don't have any other Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I just know her as Mrs. McKeachin. But um, she wasn't a music teacher. But um, she impacted me not so much by like the content of her teaching. Like I don't remember exactly how the lessons went, but just her entire presence as a teacher. Um, and I just in thinking about your question, thinking back on her classroom um, in hindsight, I feel like she was that embodiment of that quote. I don't know if you've heard it where um, I think it's people will not remember what you did or said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of teachers in my life that have embodied that quote. And I think she was probably one of the first that that did. Um, and, and that's definitely something that I, I try to impress upon students that I work with here at IU um, as they're about to go out and teach in the public schools, um, just to kind of remember that it's it's about it's about connections, it's about relationships, the the that human element um, that's probably the most important thing, mm -hmm. um, not so much the content of what we teach, but it, it also kind of reminds me of like um, that that whole idea of presence as a teacher um, being so impactful. Um, I don't know if if either of you are, are ever get hooked on TED talks. Oh, um, yeah, I know I sure. do. I go in that, get in that spiral, that rabbit hole of watching all these <laughs> TED Talks. Um, mm -hmm. I remember one that went really viral early on was um, uh, Dr. Amy Cuddy, who is a Harvard lecturer and a social psychologist. And she has lots of you know books and um, presentations about this element of presence. And I love what she says in her book and her presentations about, um, and this is from like the classroom to corporate boardrooms, but she kind of identifies the common traits of people that are, that have strong presence as um, exuding competence and warmth. Um, and I think that's a really great way to think of it. I mean, it just mm -hmm. really simplifies it, of course. Yeah. But I mean, I think if you have those two things, and I would add to that, like in terms of what we do, um, uh, high expectations. So yeah. competence, warmth, and high expectations. I think that's a really effective sort of cocktail, I think, for being um, a really impactful person in front of young people. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, it was really just from not even a music teacher early on. It was just from um, that uh, sixth grade experience. Uh, but then, of course, kind of building off of that, I had really fantastic uh, music educators that were in front of me in my uh, middle and high school years. Uh, my middle school pro or, or my high school program was, um, as I mentioned, just it was quite competitive, like as a lot of programs are in, in Southern California in terms of marching band. Mm -hmm. um, but 
the program was in in pretty good balance, I'd say. You know, we we had really outstanding groups all around, and um, we were able to to play a lot of outstanding repertoire, and it kind of cemented in my mind that um, that was the thing I wanted to do. So yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Um, so you you mentioned IU Indiana University, and we know mm-hmm. that your path uh, to 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 IU is a relatively unique one. Could you tell us about how you got there and what your current position looks like? Sure. Um, well, as I said, uh, you kind of have to go early sometimes to kind of put the whole path in context. So, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, I went to the University of Redlands um, and the University of Redlands, um, as I went through my undergrad and master's, actually, it's a small conservatory style program at a also small-ish liberal arts university. Uh, I'm so glad uh, in hindsight that I chose to study music in a place like that, um, especially now because I'm in such a large institution teaching. And um, uh, just just to ha- kind of have that liberal arts uh, individual focused background that's mm-hmm. so inherent in liberal arts education. Um, and even the mission statement of the University of Redlands um, School of Music, um, they state like we're trying to not just train a player or a singer, we're trying to teach the whole individual. Um, so I think that's that's so in line with liberal arts um, programs. And that really kind of, um, you know, became a part of my DNA as a teacher. Um, and I don't think that it's any accident that is the case. Um, so after like a really amazing time as an undergraduate there, um, and I actually attended um, my undergrad with my now wife. Um, and we've, as an aside, we've actually been a couple since high school, since oh, we were 15. Wow. So we're, we've been in it for the long haul. Uh, that's usually <laughs> the response we get. We get, high school we get the head tilt, yeah. <laughs> the head tilt and the awe. Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, <laughs> we we had the really um, interesting experience after my undergraduate years and pursuing a music education degree of ending up back in our hometown, back in Santa Barbara, because I got a job offer. I applied to a job and I got a job offer for um, actually being a, a band director at not just the high school, but also the middle school or rather the junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was teaching concurrently at both sites, um, mm-hmm. my my. FTE was kind of split between both. And I kind of started as a uh, kind of an associate director at the high school. And I was a full director at the um, junior high um, that that high school fed from. Um, And but over the course of the about four years I was there, um, I kind of gradually took more of the high school position to where I was directing most of both both programs. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that was an extremely busy time um, and really demanding. I even had a few years where I was teaching elementary band at several school schools in the d- district. Mm-hmm. On top of it all, <laughs> so it was a it was an insane time. Um, yeah. But it, boy, I mean, were my feet put to the fire in yeah. a short amount of time, and I learned a whole lot. So I'm, I'm glad for it now. But yeah, I would not suggest that for <laughs> anyone listening. It's also, like a lot of different um, kinds of hormones. <laughs> like yes, each level. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you start to feel uh, a little, uh, little unbalanced at times too. Being a teacher in front of those different, like, yeah. mm-hmm. who am I now? Who who am I supposed to be in front of these th- yeah. this age? Um, but yeah, so you know, I only mentioned that just to say um, it, that and some other um, personal and and um, and and 
you know, look, family, um, not issues, but um, challenges. Um, uh, my, my wife um, had some um, heart um, health challenges. She actually had uh, open heart surgery in, in oh, our wow. mid twenties. Um, and, and she's fine now. <laughs> um, but that was a little bit of a scare and it kind of reminded us and cemented in our minds that you just don't know what this life will bring, you know, tomorrow. And going back to grad school was always something that I wanted to do. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't really adamant about it. And then once that that heart scare and that those health scares happened and we got through it. It was just sort of like a wake up call, like, boy, you don't know how much time you have. So you yeah. better just go out there and do the thing that you want to do. And so, um, and making that leap from being a public school teacher to, you know, going back to school and essentially, um, living just above the poverty line <laughs> for a mm -hmm. while and, uh, making that financial leap too, um, was a big deal for us. But we, we went back to Redlands. I, I pursued a, a conducting degree there and my master's. And then from there, it was really, um, solidified in my brain that I would want to end up teaching college. So, um, I applied to several different schools and I ended up, um, actually at IU for my terminal degree. Um, I, uh, started my doctoral work and completed that work, uh, mm -hmm. here at IU, uh, around 2015. And I had this kind of, um, like you said, unique experience of, um, towards the end of my, or at the end of my degree work. And I was looking for jobs, um, I was really surprised and really kind of honored to be approached by the faculty regarding a um, possible non-tenure visiting professor position. Mm -hmm. um, and it would sort of entail me doing largely what, much of what I still do to this day, where I um, conduct the IU concert band and teach undergraduate conducting and teach wind repertoire courses mm -hmm. and even some music education coursework for um, teachers about to go out to a student teach. Um, but at that point it was, it was non-tenure. It was just a visiting thing. There was no guarantee of that. It would, it would stick around that there would be, a you know, um, uh, further years beyond the, the clinical appointment. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, no, knowing that there's no guarantee of longevity, um, you know, my wife and I just kind of like sat down and thought about it and it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Um, we didn't really think of any downsides to it. Um, but, so we we um, took the two year contract and and luckily after two years all the behind the scenes logistics um, at the school really worked out and the funding was secured to um, kind of transition it to a, a, a tenure track position assistant professor mm -hmm. position in our band uh, and wind conducting department. And at that particular time around, it was open to a national search and it was a competitive. Oh, okay application thing. And it was kind of this weird thing. I know sometimes yeah. people find themselves in this situation of, um, applying to your own job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, that was a little, um, it wasn't, it, I mean, I, I should say IU and the Jacob school and my colleagues all handled it so professionally and mm -hmm. they were very objective and, um, and, but, you know, I ultimately ended up in the, the last couple as the last couple finalists and, um, I ended up winning the gig. So, and I've been there, um, I've been here ever since and, and in that redesignated, re um, tenure track. So I've been here in Bloomington for nine, almost 10 years and three as a doctoral student, two as a visiting professor. And then I think entering into my fifth year on this new tenure track. So I feel extremely fortunate and blessed to have had the opportunity and, and it's not lost on me how weird it is to experience 
um, timing and opportunity aligning multiple times mm-hmm. <laughs> for me to go from like being a participant somewhere and then ending up back. Um, it happened with my public school teaching position. I returned back home to that program and then I happened to stick around here. So it's, I know it's, like you said, very unique and yeah. I feel very fortunate. It's kind That's of crazy. Such a great story though. So, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a kind of a wild ride li- living it too. It's just kind of like, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I guess we're doing this. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, a good point to make um, that even as a student, well, doctoral student, but still making that impression amongst the faculty of your level of maturity, your level of professionalism, um, and how that kind of created a bit, an easier streamline into into the position that you were. Um, but yeah, it, it is a unique kind of thing. I, I think of the story of, a, I think Jerry Junkin is an example of that. He ended up going somewhere for his schooling and then like, oh, a position opened up at the school and then ended up doing that. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's something that I always preach to my students as well. Like mm-hmm. you, you just never know who's watching. You know, never. treat your life as a job interview. And that's not to say you should be clenched and nervous all the time. <laughs> yeah. But Stressful. I mean, yeah. there's there's a certain um, way of operating and, and moving about the world when you're out mm-hmm. in public spaces that it's wise to adopt, I think. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And um, yeah. th- it's it, this is super cool for me. I, I've, I didn't tell Kate this or, or you in the lead up, but my, um, my main... Uh, brass teacher in my undergrad is a graduate of, of IU and uh, Linda Pierce and oh. she did her uh, doctorate with uh, Pete Elfson in trombone there so it's it's oh, very, fantastic yeah so it's a, a small world and I think she was teaching adjunct bass sack butt <laughs> which is very unique <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the early music program but anyway um, so I just have so much respect for for this the institution that that is the Jacobs school and and uh, all the wonderful performers and professionals that you put out into the world um, but with so much going on at IU uh, I can imagine there's quite a f- a few bit of responsibilities and, and pressures that come with the job. Uh, and many teachers this year have been facing burnout because of the pandemic. And um, we're wondering how, how do you manage the many roles that, that you play in your life and uh, make sure to, to take care of yourself? A very easy question to answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a big one and, but an important one. And I saw this question and I immediately, I think in my notes to myself to kind of, um, go over as I answered it, I, the first thing I wrote was, yes, exclamation mark. Um, <laughs> yes, certainly. <laughs> pressures, sense of responsibility, um, sense of obligation to our students. Um, it can re- be really easy here in a school like this, in a school this large and with the rich history it has um, in terms of quality and excellence and all those, these things and um, just the scope of things. I mean, I think IU, uh, the Jacobs School is us in North Texas are are usually the two giant schools uh, vying for largest music school, m- most comprehensive <laughs> music school, and it's yeah. it's kind of it's kind of overwhelming at times. Yeah. I will say, however, and this is something that we always uh, tell students that are interested in uh, programs here: um, it's a large school, um, but I really feel like there are communities within the greater Jacobs School that are formed, and you you have you kind of have these small communities and, and, and uh, um, 
niche areas, of course, and, and kind of colleagues within the larger structure that really make it feel personal. Uh, at least that was my experience in, in our department. And mm -hmm. we really do, um, in fact, make it a point to try to make our uh, band department, wind conducting department feel like a family because there is that this history within our department of of really amazing people like you know uh, Fred Ebbs and Ray Kramer um, and uh, uh, Stephen W. Pratt who was my teacher and then mm -hmm. became my colleague afterwards. Um, but everyone that's very family oriented, very much kind of teaching again, like I said um, in my previous experience, like teaching to the person and. Mm -hmm. Uh, conducting the human beings in front of them, not mm -hmm. just um, conducting the music. Um, so, but yeah, that's all to say that, I mean, the students here are just incredible. Um, they're so intelligent, um, so musically talented and sensitive. Um, and th their work ethic is just incredible. Every year, every semester, I'm so amazed. And, but that, I mean, in my role, that really, um, I, like you said, there are pressures with that. I feel that uh, way of the responsibility of to bring my best, my absolute best at every moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just kind of realizing that I'm being pushed just as much I, as I try to push my students. Mm -hmm. And per perhaps even more so like I am pushed, and I become better. And I learn a lot uh, from my students. And I know that's kind of almost a cliche at this point, what, what people say, you know, I learn from my students, but I really do they, they make they make my job just so enriching and, um, you know, really push me, like I said, to uh, places where, um, you know, I, I hoped I'd be, but, um, you know, it happens very quick here um, mm -hmm. because, yeah. because of um, that obligation. So, yeah, there's a really rewarding part of teaching here. Um, but I think this question really gets to that elusive, quote unquote, balance of work versus life that we're always chasing. Yeah. And, you know, I think that whether it's for me, a role of like a conductor of IU groups, like a conductor here of ensembles or a conductor of a community group, because I, I lead a com community uh, wind ensemble here in town called the Southern Indiana Wind Ensemble, um, or a professor of these like academic classes. Um, but more mm -hmm. importantly, maybe the label or uh, role as a husband or a father or friend. I think the right balance with these roles and for anyone listening, like whatever that means to you, whatever right or um, balanced is for you, because it's different for everyone. It's different for me than it is for you, Dylan, or you, Kate. Um, but my right balance is um, sort of developing certain non-negotiables in my life. Um, for me, it's making sure that I'm as present as possible with you know my family, my son, my wife, uh, for the amount of time that I get to spend with them. Uh, of course, you know, mm -hmm. teaching here in this profession is so busy and it pulls you in so many different directions and you have to often travel, yeah. not so much this past year, uh, but you know, that's part <laughs> of the gig. Um, so, you know, just making sure that my attention is not split while I'm with the people that I love. Uh, in particular, my, my son, you know, just, he's, he's just three. He just turned three a couple weeks ago, actually. Ooh. And um, he's at this age, which is so fun, where he's asking so many questions and he's he's wanting – he wants to be around us, which I realize that will not always be the case. Yeah. Um, and so just really taking it <laughs> – Cherish it now. <laughs> yeah, taking advantage of that. And, um, yeah. you know, so speaking of uh, 
Ray Kramer or Mr. Kramer, um, he often talks about similar philosophies in his own um, career here that it was not the, uh, he says, I think it's wasn't the quantity of time, but the quality of time that you spend with loved ones. And for me, that's sort of at the bedrock of how I think of balance. Um, but I also think it's like finding outside interests. Um, maybe it's like fall, like being a huge college basketball fan. I say, I mentioned that cause IU is a basketball or Bloomington is a basketball town, but, um, maybe yeah. <laughs> it's, um, getting lost in a movie or TV series and being in binge watching something on the couch with my wife or something. Um, it doesn't have to be these grand <laughs> gestures, but like little things to contribute to that balance. For me this year, it's been playing the banjo. Oh yes, that's right. <laughs> I've been following the the banjo chronicles on Instagram. Yeah. What, what a crew too. What an all-star crew. It's amazing. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, but it's just just such a good reminder to find something that really just is just for you, for fun, for your own enjoyment, um, and you know, making sure that you're creating time for those kinds of things in addition to all the responsibilities and pressures as right. well. Right, and I, I love that mm -hmm. it's still musical, but you're doing something that just brings you joy, and that's you know, putting yourself back in the mind of a learner. Um, I think that's amazing, very admirable. Yeah. Oh, and, thanks. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think all, like, all of the things you said are, are so important, but especially, you know, us uh, in in band land, we, we often hear about the legendary work ethics of whoever. Mm -hmm. And um, I know early on in my already, you know, young career, I was a bit of a workaholic because I, I know I had a mentor that was a bit of a workaholic. And uh, it's it's so great to hear you talk about how important that is to you um, and how that not only enriches your family life, but I imagine that time with your family also enriches your professional life too, right? So it's kind of a, a full circle kind of thing, which is cool. So uh, Jason and I are collaborating along with a number of other really amazing people on a presentation for this year's Midwest clinic. And the presentation is called Beyond the Token, Asian Perspectives in Wind Band Music. And so this is a very timely and relevant topic given everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, and I think it's great that Midwest is encouraging these kinds of discussions. But I also think that we as a society still have a lot of work to do, a long way to go. So Jason, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the problems that come up with tokenism and performative approaches to diversity. Yes, uh, I agree that we have a lot more work to do in these areas. Um, not only that, but I've really kind of come to believe, and I, I, know, I know I'm not alone in this, that uh, we have to really fundamentally change uh, not just our habits and our actions, but our thought processes too, and our mindset around discussion, and work around issues with diversity and equity and inclusion and access and all these words we um, we think about. Um, I also kind of think that what we have to do is stop thinking that diversity is something that we add to the various spaces that we occupy and stop thinking of diversity as like a destination point like that we reach and we accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. sort of, you know, because if you think about it, if we there's no kind of arrival of like, yes, we are appropriately diverse now. We've done it, everyone. You know, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not really, 
it's not really a destination. It's it's like ongoing efforts, right? Um, so I think it has a lot more to do with process. It has more to do with cultivating diverse spaces and nurturing and celebrating. Um, and it's, you know, kind of in the the trying of, of the whole process and, and making mistakes and realizing that making mistakes will happen. Um, and I think above all, um, taking the, the position of being a listener, uh, especially from those that have been historically marginalized. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, kind of in the that element of making mistakes too. I, I think that there can be a lot of fear in people of sort of getting it wrong or, um, you know, making that, that sin of, of tokenism in a concert program or something like that, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. But again, I, I think the, the newsflash here is that you will get it wrong and you will make yeah. mistakes. And that's really a part of growth. Um, I always tell my conducting students when, um, when we start actually conducting uh, musical excerpts and we're working with them gesturally and, and really working on them trying to become more vulnerable and open, um, you know, I ask, are you uncomfortable right now? Or does that feel weird? Or does that feel odd? And they usually say, yes, this feels very unnatural. And mm -hmm. I feel like hyper aware of myself. And, and, but I usually tell them like that feeling is you kind of brushing up against this area of growth, you know, the, it should feel uncomfortable for a while. Yeah. Um, in, in, you know, less eloquently spoken, uh, we kind of have to suck at it for a while before <laughs> we're, we're good at it. Right. Yeah. Um, that, see, that's, that's the trumpet player yeah. thing coming out. Um, <laughs> you have to suck before you're good. Um, but an, another thing that I always think of, and I've, I've come to think of a lot this year, uh, especially is uh, something that has become almost an informal adage of me and my colleagues in a faculty committee that I've been fortunate to be a part of for the last two years. It's a um, faculty diversity and equity committee, uh, specifically for the Jacobs School of Music. And the adage is, um, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. So, mm. you know, we can sort of be paralyzed by wanting to get everything just perfectly right and, and um, making sure that we never make mistakes. But in, in that pursuit, um, you actually never end up doing anything and you, you end up kind of being again, paralyzed, um, in your place when it, when it comes to tokenism though, to your question about that. Um, I mean, we, I think at this point we all, most of us know what this means. I mean, it's the obvious problem is when we're programming, uh, composers from diverse backgrounds, um, kind of, uh, programming a, a composer as the only on a program yeah. and sort of essentially just programming that person to check off a box uh, or satisfy some sort of um, self-imposed requirement. Um, you know, I, I do think we need to feel that obligation um, to program diversely, but I feel that what's essential to this is that the efforts are ongoing and consistent and ever-evolving and that we never uh, kind of make these one-off efforts or gestures. Um, you know, it's in, never done for the reason of avoiding cri cri critique or pushback. Yeah. Um, many, many people, I think, are concerned with, like, what do I need to do um, to get it right versus, like, I'm going to do this in the long mm -hmm. haul. I also sort of cringe a bit when I hear... Um, like a single concert program that's specifically promoted as like the diversity concert. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you guys know what I yeah. mean? I also cringe um, because I, my music is often included on 
those kinds of concert programs, right? All women mm -hmm. composers or here's our, here's our diverse program for the year, you know, and the right. rest of them are, are normal or what, what has been historically uh, pretty common. And yeah, I definitely cringe at that as well. It's, it's a fine mm -hmm. line because I want to be grateful for anybody programming my music, but at the same time, it's kind of like, I don't know if this is really the way to do it on an ongoing basis, like you said. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, what we're, I think what I'm getting at is it shouldn't be a novelty. Yeah. It, it should just be normal. Mm -hmm. It should be kind of folded into the fabric of what we normally do and what we value. Um, and I think that gets to the performative aspect, what you described right there. It's like, should we sh just feature black composers in February? I don't think so. No. Um, no, let's feature them all year round. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so, so, absolutely. Yeah. And the you know the women women composers concert in March for International Women's Day, and all these kinds mm -hmm. of you know um, themed concert programs. And I I don't remember who said it, but I saw a quote somewhere that someone posted that was just being a woman is not a theme. You know, uh, this is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's not the way to approach this. <laughs> Thinking so there's there's a there's a common theme between this conversation and the one we had last week with our friend Sarah Salima and um, about the the fear of kind of well I guess the fear of failure is a common theme in my life but um, but I was telling Kate uh, before <laughs> uh, bef uh, off off camera um, last week that I remember I last year or the year when I first got to the college I had bought this piece and I am now completely ashamed of it. And like, I can't believe that I bought this piece. I just can't believe it like two years ago. But just to understand that now I acknowledge that it's <laughs> should never be performed again. Um, but anyway, um, but, you know, being OK with with talking about it and, and admitting that and, and growing from from that is, I think, very important. And I, I also want to take this opportunity to promote and we'll put it in the show links. But there's a wonderful uh, kind of you. It was kind of like a Zoom call that you led um, with a lot of your colleagues and, and some students at IU with uh, with Rodney Dorsey and oh. um, Demondre Thurman as right. well. Um, talk, talking about this. So I'm going to make sure to, to put that in. Um, was that the committee you were talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, our, our committee um, sort of organized the series of, of those conversations. And um, those really came about last summer. Um, it started out, of course, in direct response, um, direct action, um, just trying to um, react to the George Floyd uh, murder mm -hmm. and just, um, you know, our, our community, like most communities, were just was reeling from th that news. And as things have continued to um, to be uh, quite challenging in terms of um, violence and, and racism, and you know, recently the AAPI issues have really come to full light. Yeah, um, yeah we've continued those community conversations. So it's been a, a really outstanding mm -hmm. way to to build community. Yeah. So, and yeah. um, th this next question, I I put it, but I don't know how I feel about it. But uh, you know, with all the really great talk of diversity and programming, and uh, we had a, a conversation last week about performing works, you know, that are well established in our canon, maybe works by Granger or Strauss, and um, when we perform them. Um, do we share the, those truths about the composer uh, with our students or uh, do we let them in on the context? And then I told Kate, this is kind of like me asking, how do we perform music by racists? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Right. Well, you know, I think that I have a great respect and love for the many, many uh, what have been regarded as quote unquote cornerstone works and Mm -hmm. uh, masterworks of the band genre that have been sort of lifted up by at this point. Um, and that's influenced by my own biases and, and I can own that in my own experiences as a player and conductor of wind bands and training as a wind band conductor. Um, that being said, you're right. I mean, there are many issues that extend well beyond just a discussion within the band world. Um, it's that perennial question of, can we sort of separate the art from the artists? Yeah. You know, where do we draw that line or, and, and that's, that is a huge question. And, um, you know, especially if there are, like you mentioned, uh, you know, composers that you were you're saying these are a batch of racists essentially or um, there's just really a lot of problems yeah. um, lots of um, uh, pitfalls um, so there's certainly there can be many very troubling aspects of an artist persona like that or beliefs or actions um, historically um, because and because we have to remember that music is never composed in a vacuum mm-hmm. I mean they're it's reflective of the world we live in and the lives that these composers, as, as you know, Kate, um, live. Um, that's, that's the source of much of creative thought. And so I think we're wise to question or at least discuss these contexts behind the composers we play, um, in terms of your question of what would, what we do and how we present it to students. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, some resist the spirit of reflection and then use this argument of, um, oh, I just uh, program quality literature. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's received some attention recently. Um, and like accompanied by the statement of, um, you know, I don't see color or gender. Um, I just program towards this quality, yeah. right? Yeah. But it, it's important to note, I think, and I, I, I get the feeling that both of you agree that, you know, the, the canon of Western art music and, and indeed band music is formed by these historical contexts of like who was in power, um, who was oppressed, who was suppressed, um, you know, and the kind of value judgments that were formed out of those contexts. Um, you know, we, we are all continually manipulated by those factors. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to say that we don't have agency over it. It's just that it's just a truth. Right. Um, so, you know, to in response to the whole, I don't see color or gender. I just program quality. I I think that it's a flawed and damaging argument. And number one, it's just lazy, mm-hmm. right? And I, I listened to your episode with Cindy uh, Johnston <laughs> yeah. Turner, mm-hmm. and I I love like you guys. I love the fact that she's like, just just do the work, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know I mean, that's just what we need to do. Just just do it. Um, but I think yeah, it's one, it's lazy, and two, it fails to recognize that we all have biases and and what we value has been an outgrowth of those things that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I don't see color thing. That's, that's a good one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the argument of colored blindness, um, is, is really flawed. Um, it effectively erases identities, right? I mean, it just says, um, I don't, I see everyone as the same. And what you're also saying by that is, um, I, I'm not going to acknowledge at all that you come with your own cultural backgrounds and perspectives and, you know, what you're bringing to the table. Um, so it's, it's rife with, with issues. Um, I think the, to to your question about what to do, um, I think I'm convinced now that it's not necessarily, um, that we need to cancel composers or major works, but we need to do our research and get creative in ways that we, 
um, use the experience of approaching these works in the eyes of our students mm -hmm. um, to get creative and make it serve like a launching off point for discussion um, or kind of like supplementary um, programs or, um, you know, uh, you know, informative lectures here at the college level. Um, you know, here at IU, we've started to, as a faculty, really talk about um, accompanying our opera performances of, of, um, in the magic flu or certain like Madam Butterfly or any, all, all, all these problematic um, types of settings, musical settings and, and themes and, um, and aesthetics and um, use the opportunity to stimulate discussion and not shy away from those works, but just like I said, use it as a launching off point because after all we exist in academia, we exist in, in the schools. There is an inherent element of teaching that always accompanies band teaching. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have an obligation to teach, and this is a source for that. No, I think that's really, yeah. really, really yeah. a good way of saying it. Yeah. For sure. And good concrete advice for people who are wondering what to do about this problem as well, just to use it as, as a, a platform to teach and to, um, you know, open people's perspectives on these kinds of things. So that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Just double down on it. You know, just don't shy away. Just hit, get to it straight on and, and present all the problems to your students and see what they think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you've spoken on some other interviews about the importance of not only programming existing works by diverse composers, but also commissioning new works from living composers and not just short pieces, but, you know, also longer full length works that would fill the same kind of role as masterworks like Lincoln Sharposi, for example, the Holst Suites, like these big, as you said, cornerstone works, um, you know, but by by new fresh voices. Can you share your thoughts uh, on this and some of your experiences maybe working with living composers as well? And I know we're going to be collaborating on something uh, coming up yes. as well, which is really exciting. Maybe we can't share too much about it just yet, but I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Just maybe we can just leave it at that and sort of tease it out. <laughs> yeah. um, to, to be continued. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, the, I, th I think that we need to continue advocating for composers from these diverse backgrounds to not only feel empowered and supported to just compose any music, but advocate for um, really uh, kind of significant large form works for the medium. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, these pieces that we've typically held as these masterworks, they've kind of functioned as, um, you know, centerpieces mm -hmm. for our concerts, um, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I love the Lincolnshire Posies and the Hindemith symphonies and the mountains rising <laughs> nowhere, you know, all those centerpieces. I think those pieces will continue to stick around. Um, but I think that there's plenty of room by, by other composers, um, to enter the repertoire by not just commissioning and pr premiering, um, but just repeat performances of these big works mm -hmm. and, you know, to, to pull together consortia that, that um, from lots of different um, schools and entities to to support uh, financially the, the efforts of composers to want to dive into mm -hmm. that world of you know composing a symphony or composing a big um, you know trombone concerto or something like that um, you know I, I think that too long have these works from diverse uh, populations have kind of existed in the you know three to seven minute 
you know, frame that kind of functions, to be honest, like in a lot of programs, like, oh, that's the filler piece. Okay, that's the, you know, obligated diversity piece. Um, But let's let's advocate for some some bigger works um, so that um, we can just increase the um, output and and also um, feel that composers um, feel that we value um, those those types of aesthetics in, in the works that they create. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's it was just at um, I guess it was a kind of a, it was like an ASU meeting, <laughs> and we were they were telling mm-hmm. me about uh, next year's some of next year's pieces, and it's it's cool to to see kind of. Uh, what you're talking about beginning because I when I'm thinking about um, Kevin Day has this new concerto for wind orchestra coming out uh, next year oh and yeah then, um, and come mm-hmm. Sunday is another kind of centerpiece work that I'm that I'm, that mm-hmm. pops into my head that you know is getting so much play now which is awesome um, but yeah it's it's really cool to see yeah. that that avalanche I hope it's going to be an avalanche begin where we have all these big works yeah, you know, a good friend of mine uh, who's actually also an IU grad that um, I've been able to um, collaborate with and just grow a friendship with is um, the composer Joni Green. Mm, yeah. um, do you guys know that name? Yeah. yeah so Joni, I believe, just finished a symphony, uh, which is very, very That's exciting. Awesome. And so I can't, I can't wait to hear more about that. And um, she just shared it on Facebook um, about a week or so ago. So, so um, that's very exciting. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I think that gets to the second part of your question, which was experiences working with um, living composers. I mean, this is something that I've always kind of felt, um, especially when I returned from my master's at the University of Redlands, that as a conductor and really diving fully into this, that I... I recognize that the band world had such a positive relationship with composers and we have a repertoire that we're continually wanting to add mm-hmm. to. Um, so when I was there for my master's, I, I, I had this idea, I don't know where it came from, but um, to ask the uh, composition faculty member, his name's Tony Suter actually, and he has some pieces written for band too, but um, oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Anthony Suter. <laughs> uh, but he, he had a weekly composition studio masterclass like most uh, college university composition programs do. And um, I asked him if I could just join their masterclass, their weekly sessions, and almost kind of just audit um, and just be a fly on the wall and participate. And, um, you know, everyone gave presentations and different um, things of that nature. And I, I fully participated. I gave my own presentations, my own analyses on certain pieces that we're focusing on. And um, the, the reason for that was to, of me being a fly on the walls. I wanted to learn as much as I could about how com- composers think and how they, they put together their works mm-hmm. and um, also just the social aspect of getting to know a lot of them mm-hmm. and seeing if they need a conductor for anything, yeah. for a premiere, for a reading, um, and trying to be um, really active and kind of uh, proactive in developing those relationships. And I think that making genuine connections like that that are not transactional, um, um, but like really seeking to, to help another individual like uh, i really want to um, learn more about your your works for for band um you know I, i'd love to um you know i have this group that i work with i'd love mm-hmm. to just do a reading of it yeah. um and you know just really seeking to help out 
finding any way to advocate for composers you really believe in that you've developed a close uh, working and friendship with, um, working relationship. Um, so that's been big for me really throughout my career, um, just seeking out as many friends and connections as I can make um, in the profession, in, in um, the band composition world. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, as far as like things like consortiums, um, I've been a part of, of several. Um, I was a part of uh, uh, our mutual connection, uh, Jennifer Jolly's mm -hmm. Great Piece Ash, yeah. that consortium. And we're um, able to do that with uh, the concert band here. And um, I believe uh, Catherine Saulfelder has a work um, that she's in process uh, with, which is a brass concerto with um, uh, intended to feature the serif brass. Oh, great. Cool. Um, so really excited about that coming around. But yeah, I mean, d d multiple things, Kate, you know, the, the project you mentioned that will happen soon. Yeah. And um, I was fortunate enough to be able to um, organize a consortium for a piece to be written for, um, by David Zube uh, when my teacher and colleague, uh, Stephen Pratt, um, retired a couple of years ago. And uh, we had a piece um, uh, kind of funded by his former students and uh, directors in the state of Indiana that that he influenced. And nice. um, it, the outcome was a piece called uh, Gloriana Frangipana, which is um, very much like an IU tied um, uh, term, a set of words because it's uh, in the alma mater. Okay. Um, oh, cool. So just to kind of, yeah, represent his long time um, career at IU and just the impact that he's had. But um yeah, and direct commissions like I, my wife and I commissioned Aaron Perrine um, for a piece called "And Sings the Tune Without the Words," uh, in memory of our um, daughter, um, and just a number of different collaborations and friendships. Um, you know, nowadays even just Zoom or Skype rehearsals mm -hmm. with composers is so easy to put together. So just getting composers in front of your groups yeah. um, and interfacing with them is just easier than ever before. Yeah. So why not just do yeah. it? Yeah. Us composers love to make friends with conductors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there you go, listener. You, you must have 10 pieces to go listen to now after this conversation. Yeah. Some really great music. Oh. Um, you, you just spoke about uh, one of the, the commissioning projects that I know Kate and I were both very, very, very moved whenever I, I heard the story and, and listened to the piece the other night. And I was wondering if, uh, and that is a, a project that you, your wife, and, and Aaron um, went into. And I was wondering if you could tell the listeners about uh, this project, what inspired it, and uh, and what the piece means to you. Yeah, um, well, I think any discussion of this piece has to involve just the story of our daughter. Um, it, we we were expecting um, our daughter, uh, her name is Evelyn, um, and she... Uh, we were expecting in this summer, late spring, summer of 2016. And um, unfortunately, she um, she was a, a preterm birth and um, and she um, unfortunately was was born and only uh, was with us for just under nine hours. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was particularly poignant and um, really affecting for us because it had been such a long, arduous road to yeah. um, um starting our family and with a lot of transitions in our lives, a lot of medical challenges, lots of just struggle. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, we, you talk about, um, you know, uh, the birth of a child being a miracle and we really do, did feel and do feel like she was our miracle. And, you know, when we lost her, um, 
and just the trauma through that and our grieving, which still continues to this day, mm-hmm. really. Um, um, because I don't, I don't think you ever heal from something like yeah. that, losing a child. But, um, but I think early on in the days immediately after, uh, we lost Evelyn, um, uh, my, my wife and I had the thought and I, I brought up the idea with my wife to, of commissioning a piece. Um, at the time I was in preparation to, to perform, um, Aaron's, um, great, just gorgeous piece only light, mm. which I'm sure a lot of so um, listeners will know. Yeah. And I just had his sounds running through my mind as I was studying the piece mm-hmm. and preparing it for that upcoming semester. And uh, it just became a very special piece for me for what it represented and this the musical honesty in which he approached um, that piece with. And so we reached out to Aaron. And, and at that time, we were uh, Aaron and I had met each other. We'd kind of been at some mutual meetings and, and social gatherings at Midwest the year or two before. Um, but through this process, kind of speaking to connections, we, we really have been able to form a, a very deep partnership and, and, and friendship through the whole process of commissioning this piece. And um, the piece is called, as I mentioned before, and sings the tune without the words. And that's a line taken from uh, Emily Dickinson's poem, uh, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. And the, the ch- decision to choose that poetic text um, was actually an idea that just the decision to include text at all was an idea from Aaron. And he made sure to ask us if we were okay with mm-hmm. that. And we came up with this poem as a source um, uh, because because of many reasons, um, but one reason being that uh, one of Evelyn's meanings of her name, of the name Evelyn, is Little Bird. And Aww. we always called her, and we still call her our Little Bird. And, um, you know, so the, the bird imagery, also the uh, imagery of hope that pervades that poem, uh, it was really important for us to let that pervade the, the piece, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's really, it, it's a piece that contains a lot of ourselves and, um, obviously a lot of Aaron, um, um, it has a, a lot of emotions in it. Um, this, this kind of sense of loss and, and pain, but ultimately ends, um, in a hopeful tone. Um, and, and that's something that is important to my wife and I, because that's largely been part of our journey, um, trying to find hope amongst all the difficulty of the difficult path. And, um, you know, so we, we wanted to kind of approach the piece in that way. And Aaron actually composed a, um, choral version, um, first, and then translated it to band. The band, uh, version was premiered by my group here at IU at, um, last year's, uh, CBDNA North Central Conference. Um, in Chicago. So we're, we, I felt, I feel so fortunate that we were able to get that performance in for everything yeah. closed down, yeah. um, due to the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, just obviously such an important piece to me, to my wife. Um, Aaron was just, I, I fully believe, um, and I'm convinced, um, even more so these days that um, Aaron was just such the perfect choice for us because of not only the way he composes, but um, just the honesty, as I mentioned before, in which he approached the work and just how much of himself he put into it. And early on, he told me that he assured me and my wife that he would sort of, sort of go Mm -hmm. there um, emotionally. And, um, and he was willing to go there and he's a father of young children and so it was, I think he really, um, you know, I want to speak for Aaron, but I mean, he's told me that it, it was a, a really 
enriching and, and, um, an amazing experience, um, working on the project because he was able to really, um, embody those emotions and, and, and connect with us in that way. And we feel the, the same, it's a mutual, um, sentiment. Yeah. So, um, it's a piece that's really, I'm, I know that will be a way for me throughout my career and my life to always return to and program often and program with honor groups that I'm a part of something that has a very personal tie that, yeah. you know, it, for someone that you lose, um, you know, and this is very common in the lost community for parents. Um, the greatest fear is that people will forget, yeah. um, people just move on and, um, just chalk it up to a, a sad time and almost kind of dehumanize, mm -hmm. you know, the person that's lost. Yeah. But, you know, we, we want people to talk about her. We want people to say her name. And, um, this is a way that that'll happen and a way that she'll always be with us. So something that's very special to us yeah. Yeah. to say the least. And th I first want to just thank you for, for sharing that and, and being so open and vulnerable with us and, and sharing that. And the second thing I'll say is, you know, I think automatically a lot of people usually like they'll want to connect somehow, but like none of us will ever, well, Kate and I will not understand ever. Well, hopefully not ever what that feels like, but just to think about right. um, what a beautiful, beautiful memory and, and pathway to hope, as you mentioned uh, that that is. And, and, and I know you said that, you know, the grieving will never end, but it really does show that how, the power, and this sounds so cliche, but the power of music to, to begin that healing process and, and to talk about it. And I, Absolutely. cause I, I was, <laughs> that it was a last night, Kate, that I was messaging you. Like I was yeah, literally sitting before, at yeah. my dining room table, listening to it while reading the program notes, then reading the poem while I was listening to it. And I was just, a, I was a mess mm -hmm. and I was, and texting Kate and just <laughs> like, it's, it is a, a beautiful, beautiful work about a beautiful person. And, um, and I really hope, and I'm definitely going to put this in the, in the, the links for people to, to listen to. And I hope that someday that I myself will be able to perform the work, but, but thank you for, for that story and, and for the, for commissioning that work. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it just, it's just, like I said, so special to us and will remain special, mm -hmm. um, for our whole lives. And it's such a gift that Aaron has given us. Um, and we could never repay mm -hmm. him for that. Um, it, it means everything to us. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you for those words. Welcome. It's so special. Uh, I, I can't help but think about the composer perspective here too and what an honor and responsibility it is for a composer to capture another human being's story or family's story and to be able to put that into something that other people are able to engage with and uh, interact with and develop their own feelings about um, if that's not an argument for working directly with living composers, you know, and bridging those connections, then I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, it was a connection to someone else in, in sort of creatively that I've never experienced before. And I don't think I'll experience anything to that degree yeah. again. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, this unfortunately brings us to the, the end of our um, 
conversation here, at least in the formal sense, we are going to be going on uh, after this last question to record a short bonus episode for our Patreon community. So listeners, you can head to patreon.com slash bandroompod to listen to our awesome bonus episode with Jason and all the other content that is there. Uh, but before we go on to do that, we have one final question for you, Jason, um, and that is if you could give one piece of advice, and you've given many piece of, pieces of advice already throughout this entire conversation, but if you could give one piece of advice to up-and-coming conductors and music educators, what would it be? Um, I think that it's always difficult to encapsulate <laughs> all aspects of what we do and like what music educators face into a couple words, but um, I think it's just to reiterate that we are human beings in this business and we are people first and foremost. So that we just talked about the power of connection and, you know, and, you know, however cl cliche may seem like that power of music too to, to connect us. And, um, you know, we, we always throw out those, those comments about we ha how we have to play beyond the notes and, and all that and make it mean more and make it more personal. And, and um, those things are said for a reason. Um, but also to kind of approach your job as, you know, from a, a standpoint of making sure that, as I've mentioned before, having that proper balance and finding your proper perspective on things and the fact that, you know, our jobs are what we do, um, but they're not entirely who we are. Um, yeah. I think being in music, of course, you know, music and music making is such a huge part of our identities. And it's not to say that that shouldn't be the case, but I mean, we need to be more because um, we need to bring more to our students, to the players in front of us, because if we're just um, in music mode all the time, band director mode all the time, then you, you don't really have the proper perspective on on the bigger picture of, of life. And I think music is made uh, more rich um, and more beautiful if you've experienced things and you've you've gone outside of your profession um, time to time and, and, and get that perspective. Um, and also with that sentiment is that your self-worth should not be tied to your accomplishments or your failures. Um, yeah. I think most of us are can be approval junkies <laughs> and, you know, really seek that out and, and, and you'll seek for those like tangible goals and, and, and accomplishments and really hold those up as, um, evidence of our self-worth. That's definitely a thing. Um, but I think what essentially it's all about is just putting your head down and doing the work and respecting others, making these connections that we've been talking about. Um, and I always tell my students, um, two things, just, be nice and show up early. <laughs> Just be nice and show yes. up early. Those two things will really allow you to go pretty yeah. far. Yeah, absolutely. So such good advice yeah. and reminders. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. That's wonderful. Like really uh, some great advice to, to leave us with. And, um, you know, Kate has, has talked about you so much and it's, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to even meet you virtually. And I can't wait until we can meet in person. Who knows? a Midwest somewhere Someday down soon. the line. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. But thank you for being so generous wow. with your time, with your knowledge, with your stories and your inspiration with us. And, um, and yeah, just thank you for being on the podcast. Well, again, it's a pleasure. And, and thank you for the invitation. It's, uh, it's just su such a great time to spend with you. And, um, and likewise, Dylan, it's great to meet you. 
Um, hopefully, we'll see each other in Chicago. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything that we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom podcast. Give us a rating and review and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider donating to our Patreon page where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, and your comment might be featured in a future episode of BRP. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room. Bandroom.